0: We invite you to stand with me as we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. This is our text, verses 1 through 11. Philosopher James Smith said that the secular age is a level playing field. We're all trying to make sense of where we are and uh, why we are here. Um, and it's not easy doing that, right? Whether you're a person of faith or not. It's hard to make sense of our lives. If 2020 has shown us anything, it's shown us that, and 2021 isn't shaping up any easier um, as well. Um, but but if, as we come to the resurrection, it's this truth um, that God aims to anchor our lives. This is the linchpin as it the Christian's life, fundamental to the story of our faith. I think I'm losing my microphone here. Um, and uh, let me just skip ahead to verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6. What then shall we say, Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would speak to us from your word, that you would speak through me uh, with your word, and that it would penetrate to the very depth of our being, that it would. Not only comfort, but it would challenge. Not not only would it uh, strengthen, but it would it convict that we might live in light of the resurrection story of the Lord our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Michael Green, pastor, theologian, says that the key to the Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. This is the heart of the matter. It's a weighty declaration, but I'm not sure that all of us understand it. I'm always amazed when I talk with people about why it is that they're a Christian. Um, And as I dig a little bit, I understand that um, our grasp on those tenets, which are at the core of the Christian faith, is shockingly low. Right? If I were to ask you, you know, why are you a Christian? You might say something like this, well, Jesus Christ died for my sins. Um, and so I don't have to suffer for my sins. He, he rose from the grave, and so now that I can go to heaven and live forever. Christians are people who believe those things, right? He died for my sins. He rose from the grave. I get to go to heaven. That's what a Christian is. Um, but but if then I were to ask you, you know, okay, so how does that work? How does Jesus' death actually get forgiveness for us? How does that? Comport. How does that connect? And what about the resurrection? How does that link to everlasting life? What makes sense of that? That seems strange to to me. How do those things work? And as I begin to dig into those kinds of questions, we end up with a lot of blank stares. Because the truth is, I think that what we're doing out there as we think about the Christian faith is we're actually buying into the narratives of the world and the promise of rescue that the world offers to us right? These secular narratives of rescue, deliverance, safety, health, prosperity, whatever it is, and we're painting them with a Christian veneer. And then we end up saying that, you know, that's, that's Christianity. It works like this. Jesus died for my sins, so now I don't need to bother about my life. I'm good. I got the sin vaccine. I can live however I want to live. I'm good. Jesus died for my sins. That's, you know, it's all taken care of. What happens when I die? Well, I I go on. Life goes on. Right? I, I get to live forever. That's what Jesus did for me. And so when I die, I get to go to heaven and inherit my best version of my life, whatever that preferred vision is. Life may stink now, but it's going to get better. How do I know that? That's the resurrection. That's that's what Jesus did. That was His job. That's what He owes me. I I bought in and now He's going to give me that. that, that, That's how it works. It sounds pretty good. The problem is it's a hollowed out version of the Christian faith. It's actually not Christianity at all, to be sure. I don't want to mislead you. Christianity is a story of rescue. It is a story of deliverance. It does bring to us forgiveness from our sins. It does offer us an everlasting hope, but it's not some escape into some immaterial, ethereal place where I get to indulge all of my private fantasies. Where I can just have whatever I'm envisioning for my life, however that might be construed. How do I know that? The resurrection. How do I know that's true? The resurrection is how we answer that question, which brings us to this passage here from Romans chapter 6. Because here, Paul not only assumes the truth and the veracity of the resurrection, he's explaining its significance to us as believers. And this is what I think many of us as Christians don't get. We don't really understand. Now, how is this actually impacting my life? How does this actually matter for my life? Because Paul, what Paul wants us to see What I would say to you is that this is the core truth of Christianity. The resurrection is the fundamental story. The resurrection is the story that's to anchor our lives. Our lives must be defined by the resurrection because it's true and because it matters. Now, every Easter um, uh, Sunday, I, I like to go into some of the reasons for why we ought to believe the truthfulness, the veracity of the resurrection, because I know that some of you out there are doubting, and you're not quite there. This is my opportunity to remind us of why believing in the resurrection makes a lot of sense. Uh, To be sure, Paul could not have written these words in Romans chapter 6 if he didn't believe that the resurrection were actually true. He, He elsewhere says that if Christ has not been raised, then my preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and you are still in your sins, which is to say that we would all be um, broken in our sins if Christ has not been raised up but the problem with the resurrection is that it's an historical event we can't we can't determine its truthfulness as it were like a mathematical theorem right we can't bring to it the Christmas of certainty that we might like to uh, have um, to defend its truth that the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ they're like any event in history we, we Receive them according to the testimony of others. And that's just where the story of the Scriptures help us, because we have good reason, compelling reasons, in fact, to believe the story of the resurrection, the the miraculous character of it notwithstanding. Why? Because there were many witnesses. There were many witnesses to the resurrection. Not only was Peter a witness and John a witness, but so were all of the apostles. Uh, Paul will tell us later that there were more than 500 who saw the resurrected Lord. And if there were so many witnesses, many of whom were alive as the story of the resurrection began to circulate in the uh, first century world, it would have been easy to debunk that, right? If a falsehood were being purported. And then, secondly, if the resurrection were a fabrication, then why didn't the officials just produce the body? That would have been easy enough. If Jesus was really dead, and if He was staying dead, and people began to talk about resurrection, then all they would have had to do is produce the body and said, no, see, not not resurrected. But you say, oh, the disciples, they stole the body, right? They were fabricating a hoax. They were... um, Uh, engaging in some sort of ruse to convince the world that Jesus had been raised up from the dead. And that may uh, be an interesting thought, but but we have to explain why the disciples went to all the trouble to take care of Jesus' body when He died. We have to explain why they were so devastated after He died. Why did Joseph of Arimathea, at great expense to himself, um, even giving up his own tomb, to place Jesus in the tomb? Being a man of great esteem and character, a part of the Jewish high council, why would he go to that trouble to take care of Jesus' body? And not only that, we have to address the concerns of the woman, women who were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection given their low social status, given that they wouldn't have even um, been admissible in a court of law. Their testimony, why would the Gospels make so much of their uh, part in the story. Why would it be a focal part of the resurrection accounts? If the disciples were worried about what people were going to think and they were devising a scheme or a hoax, surely that part of the story would have been denied. It would have been eliminated. it would have been ignored, but but they don't. that that part of the story is so prominent means that it must have happened that way. The women must have been the first witnesses to the resurrection. Because they were going to take care of a dead body. You see, that they weren't expecting resurrection. but they encountered it. Which then brings us to the fact that we had both witnesses and an empty tomb. But one without the other could have been explained, that both were true makes the case all the more compelling. Think about it. An empty tomb, but no witnesses. Nobody thinks resurrection. Nobody would have written the gospels if there had been an empty tomb, but no witnesses. Witnesses with a filled tomb or a body produced, it would not have been explained as resurrection. We might have explained it in lots of ways, that we too, remember our loved ones who've passed on, but we don't say resurrection, not yet. You see, there were both witnesses and there was an empty tomb affirming the truthfulness of Jesus' bodily resurrection. I recognize that there have always been those throughout history who have said, oh, no, no, this couldn't have happened. The disciples were reimagining the Lord Jesus Christ. They had um, um, this new awareness of how Jesus was going to live on in their lives and carry the ministry forward as they um, imagined Him to be present with them through His Spirit or some otherwise uh, notion. The problem with such uh, ideas is they just don't fit with the New Testament, just flat out. This is not what the New Testament is telling us about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jerosoph Pelikan says that if Christ has been raised, nothing else matters. If Christ has been raised, nothing else matters. And if Christ has not been raised, guess what? Nothing else matters. You see, this is the story. This is the story upon which all history turns. It's the story that changes everything. The problem is, is we've all encountered strange, unprecedented events, maybe even miraculous events, and when we encounter news stories of such things, that maybe even when we experience them, we don't think, okay, now my whole life gets to change. This ought to change everything about my life, and so we've got to ask this question, right? What gives? What is it about the resurrection that demands that my life be redefined, recast, Reinterpreted. What is so significant about the resurrection that I ought to engage in that kind of um, re envisioning of my life? Well, it wasn't just a miraculous historical event, right? It was a promised event of a particular person. The disciples had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was the one promised long ago. What they didn't envision is the cross. What they couldn't have anticipated was the resurrection when Jesus died on the cross. That they thought, okay, end of the story. That they didn't know that Sunday was coming they didn't know resurrection was coming that they didn't have a full grasp of the story and so they didn't understand its significance or it was or its meaning and that's what Paul is helping us understand here in Romans chapter 6 because he's saying that with Jesus Christ not only did something happen to him something happened to us who've put our faith and trust in him He says that we've been, in verse 3, baptized into His death. As we read on, he describes that we have a union with Christ, verses 5 and 6. And stepping back to the broader context of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we know that Paul is talking about Jesus in a similar way that he's spoken about some other person that we had a union to. Specifically in chapter 5, Adam, the first man, who though was born perfect in the garden sinless, fell into sin, and with Him, Paul says, we too fell into sin. That we too were bound up with His corruption and His brokenness. As it were, we were united to Adam. And for that reason, all of the world, all of humanity has been corrupted. All of the world is guilty and broken. But in Jesus Christ, we have, as it were, a new Adam. We have a new chapter in the story. One who has come from God the Father to undo the the guilt and power of sin which was bound up with Adam and all of his lineage. Paul's logic is simply this. What Jesus did, we did with him. That's his logic. What happened to Jesus happened to us. If it happened to Jesus, it's happened to you. And thus, we have our freedom. And so what Paul's going to say is we've been crucified with Him. And we've been raised up with Him. Crucified and resurrected in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That that means that that we were with Jesus on the cross, we were with Him in the grave, and now we are out from the grave with Him as our risen and victorious King. Look again in verses 3, 4, and 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You see, there's the link, right? We are united to Him, and so what He did, we did. Not because we did it, but because we were with Him. That's what Paul's saying. Because we were with Him by virtue of our faith and trust in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the significance of that is profound. Because that means that Jesus' victory is ours. That's why he can say in verse 7, we've been set free from sin. Or as it reads in the original, justified from sin. The penalty of sin no longer... um, is set against us. but Later Paul will write, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that he's eradicated that penalty because it has been satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why our sins are forgiven is because they have been paid for through the sin offering that is Jesus Christ. But that's not all. But Paul says that we too have been raised up unto a new self. An old self has died, and a new self has been raised up. As Jesus was resurrected from the grave, so too will we. Verse 8, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. But therefore, in Jesus Christ, we become new, a new person. Elsewhere, Paul will write, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's great. The old is gone. The new has come. We are new in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I recognize that that new self still awaits a glorious um, and physical manifestation when we're given new resurrection bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ now has. But we don't have to wait to taste that newness until our resurrection. Paul is saying to us, and this is what's so profound about what he's saying, is it's now. We have it now. We have that newness now. Not in fullness, but it's real. In your worship guide, you see the quotation by Tom Wright. This is what he means. The Messiah's resurrection means that those who are in the Messiah now stand and must walk on resurrection ground. We do not wait until the final bodily resurrection before beginning to walk in newness of life. Hopefully it's beginning to make sense. It's coming into focus. Jesus' story is our story. That's what Paul's saying. Just because we aren't fully new doesn't mean that we're not truly new. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we are new because the old self has been crucified. We we have been set free from the power and the guilt of sin and raised up unto a new self in whom we should walk and in Him we now walk. Some key things flow forth from those truths. First of all, it means we should never despair of our lives. We should never despair of of our lives because on balance, the new story is gaining on the old story. You see, in Christ, the new is stronger than the old. I know the process of sanctification might be slow, but it's not pointless. We may face many setbacks in our lives, right? But through it all, we are changing. We are growing. Old habits die. Addictive cycles can be broken. And we no longer have to give ourselves over to the story of sin. This is what Paul's getting at as he introduces this chapter. Friends, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we continue in sin if we've died to it? That's what he's saying. If you've died to sin, why would you live in that any longer? Why would you keep going down that old story of death? Live into the story of life and into the Lord Jesus Christ. And so don't despair. And I know there are many reasons for us to despair. We we all have struggles in our personal lives, families, jobs. There's all kinds of things going on in in our lives. And yet, Paul is telling us that the resurrection story is the fundamental defining story of our lives. And it is a story of hope that says that we are linked to the resurrection of Christ. And not only does Paul say that about us, he's ultimately saying that about the world. Later, he will say that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of all creation. So, So not only do we not despair of our lives, we don't despair of the world. Because the resurrection and all of its fullness is coming. That's a hard thing for us to say right now in 2021. As we look around us at all the despair, all of the sorrow, all of the hardship that we see in this world. As we look back on 2020 now 2021, I, I couldn't believe this. I read this this past week. Last two weeks in the United States, there have been 20 mass shootings. 20. We, we don't even know it. As we define them. That there have been 20 in the last two weeks. And we think about that tragedy to to which some of us have grown numb. And yet there's so much sorrow. And then there's COVID. right? And then there's the debates and the arguments and the venom. And, And then we have... The world around us that is in its own way struggling, tearing at at each other. I I heard just yesterday from one of my pastor friends, he said, Pray for me. Got to preach the resurrection tomorrow. My uncle just made an attempt on his life. He was about to start chemotherapy on Monday. And I lost three of my family members during COVID. I'm crushed. Pray for me. How, how do we not despair of the world? Because the resurrection is true. The story of the resurrection is like an incoming tide. It, it may start slow, it may be coming slowly, but the hope is coming. It will not be stopped. God will consummate his redemptive purposes in this world. And so we don't have to despair for the world and we don't have to despair for our lives. But we must never shift our focus. And this is tricky. We must never shift our focus off of the story. Off of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His story of crucifixion and resurrection that gives our stories meaning. Our lives must be ever tethered to His. We live by grace. Ever dependent upon our Savior. Recognizing that it's His cross-bearing work that ha- has set us free from sin and it's his resurrection that brings new life into our lives and that's the problem is it because we're always trying to grab resurrection hope without the resurrection but we're always trying to grab resurrection hope without the Lord Jesus Christ we want to gather it along an li- illicit path our own victory our own story of success our own triumph Our own intellect, knowledge, wealth, beauty, influence. Whatever the story of our success is doing, we keep wanting the blessing of resurrection, and yet we want to unhinge it from the story of the cross. And so we end up settling for a counterfeit. You can't separate the two. You can't get to resurrection without crucifixion. And friends, we can't live into that story of victory without following Jesus into that sorrow of the cross. There's only one path to that blessedness of the resurrection, and that's by identifying with Him in the whole story. Baptism into death and resurrection unto new life. The late Eugene Peterson says that procrastinated death is the legacy of modern medicine. I think that's a little hard. I want to thank you doctors for doing the great jobs that you do to um, bring us life and the important contributions that you make. But he does have a point, doesn't he? The best we can do is procrastinate death. And if we were to survey the vast achievements of of humanity right across history, ultimately all of these achievements are trying to outwit death. Right There's some sort of way in which we are going to procrastinate. We're going to put it off. All of the things that that have come, the wheel, the compass, the calendar, the clock, the printing press, the computer, the the iPhone, all of the technology that we marvel at, ultimately we're hoping is going to bring us some better quality of life, and yet we know it cannot stop it. We cannot ultimately and finally put it off. Left to ourselves, our best moments are merely more advanced end-of-life care strategies. That's kind of what we're left with. Better end-of-life care strategies. What we need is, is a new life strategy. That's what we need and friends that's what the resurrection is all about that's what god is giving to this world a new life strategy ultimately bound up in and through him who has defeated the power of death some of you may have heard the story of the 73 year old uh, kenyan uh, farmer who is tending his beans and potato fields and while he was uh, attending to his crops, a fierce leopard charged to him, sinking its teeth into its wrists and beginning to maul him with its paws. And and just at this moment, this 73-year-old farmer somehow kept his head. I don't know how he did this, Um, but he did what any self-respecting peasant farmer would do. He took his other hand and stuck it Into the mouth of the leopard, grabbed hold of its tongue, and yanked its tongue out. You can look it up. It's true. He said that God had whispered to him that he should do that, and his obedience saved his life. It was at that point that the leopard let out this blood-curdling snarl that made the bird stop chirping. And friends, what I want us to see is in one sense, that's what Jesus Christ has done for us, right? He, He has gone into the mouth of the charging leopard and defanged it. He has submitted himself to all of its fury, it's death. It's guilt. It's evil. And he has set us free. Now, right? His resurrection has proved that he has satisfied all of its demands. And now that victory reigns over all of those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, that means we we don't have a management strategy anymore to forestall the power of death. Friends, Jesus is inviting us to live in His new life and to have our lives shaped by this story if we would but enter into it. Will you enter into the new life, the story of life that is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the story of the resurrection. That not only it being true, but so significant. Would You shape our lives according to this truth? Would we know that our old selves have been put to death? We have been set free from sin. No longer are we under its guilt. No longer are we under its power. And instead, oh God, would we know the newness of that life that is in Jesus Christ is now ours? Would we see ourselves as those raised up uh, unto an eternal and everlasting hope? God, would you minister this hope and life to each of us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.